Open up to Book of Romans. We're going to finish chapter 6 and hopefully get into chapter 7. Well, I know we'll get into it, but hopefully we'll finish it. We'll see. We went to verse 20, but I want to start at verse 19 of chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. I want to read verses 19 through the end of that chapter. Paul says, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. And the human terms he's talking about is he's just given us illustrations and he's going to give us full, further illustrations of what it means to have a life that is yielded to God, one that does not live for itself or for sin, but lives for God. And he says, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to every increasing, ever increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? These things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul goes on and he's giving contrast throughout the chapter 6 and even into chapter 7. He's giving contrast of what it is to be dead to sin but alive to Christ, a, a slave to sin and now a slave to righteousness or a slave to God. And that contrast he, he's trying to bring into terms that we can understand. And he, he says in the same way that you used to live your life in this revelry, in this wickedness, things that you're now ashamed of, well, now do that for God. And it's amazing the things that consume our lives, that we give ourselves to, the things that we want to do. If you were a partier who liked to go out drinking and you would stay up all night going out partying with the guys, you know, the bars close at two, but that didn't stop you. You would take some home or go wherever else and continue until three, four in the morning and then get up at six and go to work and just carry on. I know guys who did that. They come dragging in. They're just wasted. And they're talking about the great time they had last night and they're, you know, sick and just carrying on and to them that was life. You know, man, what a life. But they would give themselves fully to that way of life. If that's what they wanted to do, that's what they would do. And it's amazing what consumes people's lives and what they give themselves to. If it's a vocation, a job that they really want and they, you know, spend so much time devoting themselves 60 hours a week to that job just to try and, you know, make it up the scale or make it up the ladder of success. And they give themselves completely to that. They forsake their family. They forsake their life just for that, 
career, or maybe it's music. How many bands have given themselves to poverty to try and make it and get their big break? You know, yeah, they they go from gig to gig to gig, and they do all the side jobs they can just to make it. Or same thing with actors, actresses, whatever it is, fill in the blank. They give themselves wholeheartedly for this thing. And what does it produce? It doesn't really produce anything of value. In the same way that they were a slave to that, Paul is saying, be a slave to righteousness. What would happen if you gave yourself wholeheartedly to God? with the same fervor that you gave yourself to that job, to that parting, to that way of life, what would happen if you gave yourself to God? How would it change who you are? And just like you work up that ladder of success, how would it benefit you spiritually? And, and that contrast, he's trying to show us our involvement in it. Now we are no longer involved in this way of living, but we're involved in this way of living that gives ourselves to, to the Lord. And I love how he says, what did those things profit you? They profit you death. They didn't produce anything good. These guys who I used to work with in construction that would come and they'd be just boasting of their parting, boasting of their affairs, boasting of all the things that they did. What did it produce? Their families fell apart. Their bodies fell apart. It produced death. I can remember them coming in saying, yeah, I got kicked out of the house. Why? Well, you know, I was drunk and had an affair. That's one reason. My wife found out about it. So, yeah, now I'm living with this other guy I work with. Oh, boy, joy, joy. You know, that, that's a wonderful life. No, it, it, it led to death. And then he says in verse 23 something that he said early on. He said, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember in chapter 4 he said that a man works for his wages. He's not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. He's kind of playing on that same role. This is what you worked for, this is what you get. Well, if you want to work your way, what are you going to get? You're not going to get what you need. Your, your wages for sin, it's death. But the gift of God is eternal life, and he says, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The life is in him. It's not in the doing the right things. It's in Jesus himself. And there's a big difference in the next chapter. We're going to play on to this because there's a difference between working our way and the gift that God gives. He's been contrasting that the whole time. It is a gift of God. It's something that God has given. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive in Jesus. You, you can't work your way to heaven. It only leads to death. It doesn't produce righteousness, but faith, belief, trust in God does. And so now in chapter 7, he's going to continue. Just as Jesus took care of what was necessary to justify us and make us right, before God, Jesus is what it's going to take to sanctify us, to help us in this journey, kind of like what we talked about Sunday, this from point A now to point B, it takes Jesus working in us to 
work in this change about our lives. And so Paul continues giving illustrations of what it means, this life in Christ, this new life, the eternal life in Christ Jesus. In verse 1, chapter 7, it says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. He gives another illustration about the law and what the law can't do and what God can do, even in spite of the law. And he gives an illustration, another illustration, and it's one of marriage. And there's a lot of views of, of what he's trying to depict, but it's very similar in all the things that he is trying to say and bring about here about this illustration of marriage. And, and let me try and, and play it out for you, a little bit of a story. Imagine you're married to Mr. Wright. Guy's perfect. You wake up in the morning, and he doesn't need to shave. He's already just clean shaven. <laughs> His hair is in place. His pajamas aren't even wrinkled. The sheets aren't even messed up. They're just still nice and crisp over him. He says good morning to you, and he has no morning breath. His breath is fresh and clean. And he jumps out of bed, chipper, goes into the bathroom to shower, and doesn't shave because he doesn't need to. He brushes his teeth even though he doesn't need to because they're already, you know, clean. I mean, he's just perfect. He makes himself breakfast. Yeah, that's a miracle. He's a perfect guy. And he doesn't have bacon and eggs. He, he you know, he makes himself something healthy, granola and soy milk. And <laughs> doesn't have a cup of coffee because no caffeine. Instead, he has some, you know, tomato juice. and Goes off to work. Guy's perfect. He comes back home, and there you are to greet him. But your hair is a little messed up. And he notices it, and he kind of looks, and he fixes it for you. <laughs> and then you, you're, you know, your perfect husband, so you, you get ready dinner for him, and you've got a six-course meal for him, and you, you sit down, and you, you pour his, you know, beverage into the glass, but then you notice that there's, you know, water spots on the glass. You forgot to use Cascade that morning. And, and so he looks at the glass and he kind of cleans it and puts it down because it's not quite perfect. And then the garnishings on the plate, the parsley is withered. Oh no, you know, and he looks at that and he notices the imperfections on the plate and, and it's withered and he has to put the plate aside because he, he can't eat that food because it's not perfect. And so he fixes himself dinner and makes it perfect instead. And, and you go to bed thinking, I can't live like this. The guy's perfect, but he's driving me nuts. I can't measure up. 
And so you go to a lawyer or to a judge and you say, I need a divorce. He says, well, what are the grounds? He's perfect. He says, no, I'm sorry, I can't give you a divorce. He's perfect. There's nothing wrong with him. And then you remember, oh, I remember Sam, he taught on chapter 7 that if the husband dies, then I'm uh -oh. free. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> you see, but he won't die. He's perfect. You try to poison him, but his liver purifies the poison, and he just won't die. He just, he cannot die. You see, that perfection is the law. And Jesus said that not one jot or tittle will fade away until it is complete. The law is perfect. But when you have to live perfect and you can't, all it does is show your imperfection. But what happens is Jesus fulfills it and he dies. And he comes back alive, but instead of being married to Mr. Perfect, you're now married to Mr. Love. And Mr. Love, although he's perfect, he's more concerned with you than he is himself. You're free from that law because Jesus died, took care of it. You're free from it. You don't have to live to that standard anymore. You're married to someone else now. The new husband, who is Jesus, risen from the dead. You have died with Christ, but now you are also alive with him. You're in a new relationship with God, one that is formed and shaped not by law, not by rules, not by the law of regulations, but by love. You see, where law has the idea of just you have to re give responsibility. You know, this is your responsibility. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. Love, instead of responsibility, says just respond to me. And God has given us a new relationship with him. We're free from the law because the husband has died. Jesus died fulfilling what was our incompleteness, dying for us, and now he's alive. We are married to someone else. It's not to the law. It's to the God who loves us. Love does what the law cannot do. When I graduated high school, I had to wear a suit. This was in the 70s, okay? It was a, a brown suit. It had large lapels, and, and you could see the stitching. It was one of those kind of suits. I hated wearing suits. I didn't want to wear a suit. Man, you had, to, you had to force me to. They got me in a suit. It's graduation. You got to do it. Wore it. Some years later, I don't know, five years later or so, I met Corrine. Wanted to impress her. 
didn't have really any clothes that would impress, but I had a suit. It was a brown suit. Large lapels and the stitching. And I grew a little since high school from that time, so it didn't quite fit me the same. But if there was a flood, I was ready. <laughs> but you know, I got into that suit willfully, trying to impress her. No one had to enforce me. I wanted to. Why? Because I wanted to impress her. And I did. <laughs> Love will move us to do things we wouldn't do otherwise. And when you're married to the law, it becomes old, it becomes a burden, it becomes depressing, it becomes frustrating because you will never be good enough. The parsley always is going to wither. Hair is never going to be perfect. You just can't do it. And you try and live up to this standard, and you just can't. But love doesn't look at the standard. Love looks at the heart and works in the heart of people. And that's what God has done through the person of Jesus. He took care of the law. It is now dead. We don't have to live to the standard anymore. We live to God, the new husband, if you would. The last Adam, he told us. Remember the first Adam, the contrast? The last Adam. He's showing us and contrasting these things again goes on in verse 4, he says, So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, our identification, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For, bless you, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Paul is here showing us that the identification that we have with Christ, and now he's telling us that we have died to the law, we are not bound by it, and all the law did was really show us what wickedness was. It's like one child said, the Ten Commandments just gives me ideas. <laughs> the law didn't fix it, it just showed it. If you were to walk into a house and, and 
they have a, a picture on the wall, and the wall's kind of a, a off-white, and the picture is off-white itself, and not really brilliant in color. It just kind of blends into the wall. You might walk into the house and not notice it at all. You walk in, and every day you go into that house or office, wherever it is, and that picture's there. But then one day they put a dark frame around that picture, and they put it on that off-white wall, and you walk into there and you say, hey, look at that picture there. Is that something new? No, I've always had that. Well, that's what the law did, is it framed what was wrong so that it could easily be seen. So that when you walk in there, you say, oh, look at that picture. Oh, look at that covetousness. Oh, look at that sin. Why? The law showed it. It made it clear. It made it evident to us. But it didn't fix it. It just showed it to us. And so Paul is saying the law made us aware of those things. Before the law, we weren't aware. Now the law has framed it so that we can see it. Is the law sin? No. It just showed us the sin. He goes on and he says, but, verse, sin, verse 8. Huh? <laughs> I think it's verse 8. It's pretty small right now. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that there, the very commandment that was intended, sorry, I'm having a hard time reading, intended to bring the actual, actual, man, I am going blind. New glasses time. Once, okay, verse 9, I can see it here. For once I was alive apart from the law, but when the co commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. So the law brought that death to me. Now, what's interesting here is he says, once I was alive apart from the law. And he's talking about that understanding that he had when he was a child was different than when he came to be aware. Now, we've already seen that we were born into sin, that sin is not something that we learn. Sin is something that we are. We sin not because, we sin because we're already sinners. It's something that is innate. It is a part of our nature. But there is an awareness to that that takes place as a child becomes older, when they are aware of the right and the wrong. Kids are, are naturally selfish. They're naturally self-centered. It's who they are. But there comes a time when they are aware of the other person. They are aware of someone else and what they are doing is wrong. And when he became aware of that law, then he died. Before that, he wasn't judged by the law. Oh, he was still in sin, but he wasn't judged by God because he was not aware of that sin. I read 
an excerpt of Helen Keller's testimony. You know, she was blind, she was deaf, she couldn't speak. And she was talking and writing about how when she became aware that before this time she lived like an animal, but then it said that she became aware of another mind, is how she wrote it. And when she became aware of another mind, she also became aware of the things that she did and the relationship to the other person. Before that, it was just about her. She would just go eat. She would just sleep. She would, you know, cry and be upset, but she didn't really have reason to it. It was just like an animal, she said. But when she became aware of another person, she also became aware of herself in a different light. And it was the word water that became clear to her when she was writing the word water on her hand and took her to that place where they pumped the water and she felt it and all of a sudden the lights went on, so to speak, and she said, someone is communicating, someone other than me is trying to get through and there was an awareness of, oh my gosh, what have I been doing to that other person? Before the law, I was alive. But when I became aware of that other person, you shall not covet. You sh and, and the law has to deal with our, our relationship with God and our relationship with people. When we become aware of that other relationship, then we are aware of our condition. <clears throat> then I died. And what was beautiful in this story, she said, I wonder if getting to heaven will be like I was enlightened when I became aware of someone else. I wonder if heaven will be aware of something else. It was beautiful. It was incredible. Anyway, that's another note. But the point here is that Paul was not aware of his own wretchedness until the law made him aware of it. It framed it. He understood, then he died. Now, this is something also that for children, what happens with children? Well, Paul was alive before he was aware of the law. There is an innocence that God grants to children. It doesn't mean that they aren't sinful in nature, but they are not accountable because they do not know. They are not aware. Where does that happen? I don't know. God's righteous. He's just. He'll take care of that. Some people, it happens probably at a younger age than others. You know that. Some people, it's like, when are they going to grow up? I don't know. And so God takes care of that. But there is definitely a difference between when you are aware of that law, that frame, and your relationship to it and before you knew that. And I love how it says that in verse 11, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. The idea of deception brings us a reminder of the garden. And this is a clear picture of what's taking place. Because that's what sin does, is it's deceptive. Sin, seizing the opportunity when you are aware of what's right and what's wrong, sin then deceives you. Just like the serpent did in the garden with Eve. 
Look at this fruit. It's wonderful. The tree of knowledge. Wouldn't you like to be like God? It sees the opportunity and deceives. And that's what takes place. Sin is deceptive. And just like Eve was deceived, we too can fall into that deception. We are aware of right and wrong, and we still yield ourselves to what is wrong. We still give in to the sinful nature. Verse 13, he says, Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. In other words, it became sin so that I would be recognized what it is. Sinful conditions cause death so that you might be aware of it. The reason that God brought the law was not just so that you would die, but that you would be aware of the death that follows a person who lives a life of sin. The wages of sin are death. You will reap what you sow. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from the nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And so the law is given to make you aware of that sinful condition so that you'll change, so that you'll say, I'm sick of this. I do not want to live here any longer. It's a good thing to be sick of your life if your life is sick. So many times we want to deliver our children from the consequences of their actions. Mom and dad, step in. Take care of that parking ticket or a speeding ticket or whatever other violation you might want to put in there. Run over there and help the teacher and, and you know tell the teacher, no, it's okay, leave my kid alone. He's a good kid. What are you picking on him for? And maybe what the kid needs is to fail and to grow through the failure, to be aware of, you know what, if I continue doing this, I won't be able to drive at all. And if I continue doing this and get kicked out or lose my job, then I'm going to find this kind of life. And instead of intervening and just taking away the consequences, sometimes the consequences push us in the right direction and they move us towards God and say, you know what, I don't want to live this life anymore. It's death. I want to change. And I know what's right and I know what's wrong and I just cannot live up to the perfection. I need help. And so, instead of being deceived by sin, I want to turn myself to God. And again, the law was there to bring us aware of this. And Paul is, again, pushing us to this place where we recognize our condition and God's help. He's given us the illustration of the 
first Adam and sin coming into the world and dominating the world and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, taking and healing us. He talked about us being dead to sin and alive in Jesus, a slave to sin and now a slave to God about the husband who we could not be free from until he died and then the new husband who comes to life. He's talking about being rescued, rescued again and again by God. And he's pushing us to this place where we'll understand that. And it's important to see that because that's the context of the verses that lie ahead. We're going to get there. Um, we know, verse 14, that the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do but what I hate, I do. Can I get an amen out of that? I mean, could, does anyone say, yeah? We say that because Paul said that, and we can, you know, rally around what Paul is saying here, but we don't talk like this, you know, when we get together. How are you doing? Well, the things I want to do, I don't do, but the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. How are you doing? <laughs> But this is the reality of where we identify. But Paul is trying to get us past this. We're not trying to live here. In fact, he is identifying our condition so that he can deliver us from it. Which is the great news. Verse 16. He goes on. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, now, in the New International it says my sinful nature, and the other translation that says my flesh. I prefer my flesh, and I'm going to go into detail a little bit more on this Sunday, I think, but... I think what the translators were trying to do is bring meaning to this. And so they're trying to bring the contrast of my sinful nature. But I think flesh is a little bit more graphic and clear, really, of the meaning of what Paul's trying to accomplish here. And so, as I remember it, I'm just going to say my flesh. It's no longer I, but sin that lives in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Okay, let's talk about that for a little bit. Paul has shown us the awareness that comes. And it comes by the law. It comes by the Spirit of God who convicts us of sin, of right and wrong. We all know what is right. We all know how God wants us to live, but we all fail to live completely in that standard. And Paul's saying it, there's this old man that he talked about before, this sinful nature that we have. We have a spiritual nature and we have a sinful nature. 
There is the old man, there is the new man. The old man, the sinful man, lives in this way that he falls, but the spiritual man knows how he's supposed to live. And so there is an inter internal battle that's taking place with us. And unless we identify how to live this, it will drive us nuts. It will cause us to despair. It will frustrate us because we find ourselves, I can't do this. I can't live in this life. And Paul is saying, do you understand where it comes from? It is your flesh. It is this body that is sold under sin, that was corrupted from birth through the last Adam, sin came into this world. We are under this umbrella of sin. That is part of who you are. Do you recognize that sinful condition? Because if you don't, you're going to wonder what's happening. What's going on with me? Why am I always bent in this way? What's going on? Well, it's your nature. It's who you are naturally. But God doesn't leave us there. And he doesn't leave us without hope. And he doesn't leave us to ourselves, as we're going to see. So it is no longer I, but it's sin living in me that does it. It's the sinful nature. Verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Isn't that the truth? I want to do good, but the flesh is still here. It's right there with me. I love how he puts that. It's right there with me. For in my inner being, in my flesh, I delight, or in my inner being, I'm sorry, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. It's almost like Paul spent so much time talking about this condition, this battle, this war that's going on within us, how we delight in what God wants, but my body is waging war against me. And it's interesting, he says, the law of my mind, because it's almost like there's three people here. And it's almost like there's this person of the flesh, there's this person of the spirit, and there's this person watching the whole thing going on. Talk about confusing. But you see, we need to understand that our soul, what Paul says here, our mind, is able to stand back and see this battle that is taking place. So you are not just that body of flesh. You are not an animal that is given to just sin you are able to stand back and see the difference and say, I see what's happening here. There's a, a war taking place within me. This body, this flesh is battling in sin, 
but I have an understanding that this inner man is striving towards God and I'm able to stand back and see how is that possible? It's God at work within you. Before you had the Lord, you did not see this battle. You did not care about this battle. It was the Spirit of God that made you aware of this battle that finally said, I don't want to live this way. I need to live for God. And God said, okay, you're now on this side. And so you're able to see what's taking place. You're able to see the struggle in your flesh, the corruption that you have to deal with, but the Spirit of God working in you. And so now you see that there is these two fighting each other that's taking place within you. Now, you're not psychotic. You're not crazy. You don't have a, a split personality. What's happening is the Spirit of God is working eternity in you, but your body is still going to die. Your body is still flesh. But the Spirit of God is trying to work something eternal in you. And who is going to deliver you from this flesh? Well, the same one who delivered you from that husband, the same one who delivered you is the same one who's delivering you here. It is through Jesus Christ. You see, we could not save ourselves. We had to be rescued. And in this sanctifying process, it does not change. I still need to be rescued. I never become independent of my need for God. I never become independent for my need to be rescued. I'm in quicksand. This sanctifying process, I'm in quicksand. And if I just struggle in myself, I just sink deeper and deeper and deeper. I need an outside source. I need God to rescue me. I need his help. At some point in this Christian walk, we have to see that the reality of who God is plays a significant role in this relationship. That it's not just me trying to do good. It's not me just trying to get better. It's God rescuing me and changing me and doing something that I cannot do. That has to be a realization. That is faith. The just will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Or reverse that, if you have faith, you will be righteous. What is faith? It is trusting in God. I'm trusting in this box to hold my weight. I'm sitting in it. I'm putting my weight on it. I'm putting myself at its mercy, if you will. What is faith in God? It is putting our life, leaning on him and trusting in him that I will not fall even though I am dying physically. I will not fall. Nothing good dwells in this flesh. But I am leaning on God and he is working something good in me. And I can stand back and see it take place through eyes of faith. It's not me. It's God working. And Paul is trying to get us aware of that. Who is going to rescue you? It's Jesus, the one who rescued you and brought you into a place of salvation, who justified you, is the same one who is now going to sanctify you. 
you never stop being in need of Jesus rescuing you in your life. Never. You can't live this faith-filled life apart from him. You never stop being dependent on him. It's a necessity of our spiritual lives. He says, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature of my flesh, a slave to the law of sin. My mind, my awareness, I will serve God and I will deal with this body. Now, he's going to go on and take us out of here. Romans 8 is the gem of the scripture. But before we could get to the gem, we had to get to the despair. And the despair is some place that we all find ourselves in. We all identify this, you know. I think all of us look at the scripture and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know that, I know that. But it's like, okay, now that we know that, what next? Well, he, he just gave us the clue to out. You're not stuck. You are in Jesus, who is the lifeline, who is taking you and moving you from this place of despair into a place that is free in recognition of God's work in your life so that you are not alone, you are not given up to this sinful person, that you are not left abandoned to this flesh, that God has your hand and is pulling you out and is not going to stop pulling until he gets you out of here. That nothing can separate you from him. That he is able to work all things for the good. Those are just some of the things he's going to talk about. But before you can recognize that, recognize your need, your condition, the sinfulness of this flesh and this world that we're in, and now recognize how much you need Jesus because you never stop needing him. You never stop. You don't get there. Oh, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I'm there. You ain't there. You're still flesh, buddy. And it's decaying and it's obvious. You still need him. I need him more today than I did ever before. I'm just more aware of how important it is that God has hold of me. I am leaning into the wind, trusting in him to carry me through this. In my flesh, there is nothing good. It's only in Jesus. That's my hope. He is my all in all. I will not trust in myself, in my abilities. I am not free from that unless I die to it. I identify Jesus is that husband who took the penalty, died, and I'm married to the new husband who is bringing me into this place. No longer rules, regulations, but in love caring for me that new covenant I will write my law in your heart I will I will put it in within you and change you from the inside out and that's what God is working in us and then next week we're going to get into Romans 8 
we gotta we gotta get there. I mean, it's you almost don't want to stop here because this like no, what's next? And it starts off, there is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Think about that and let that be your meditation this week. After seeing this battle that's going on, well, I'm so confused. I feel this struggle within me. Remember this. This is the next point he wants you to know. You're not condemned. There is no condemnation. God does not condemn you. But you don't understand this, this flesh, this weakness. God does not condemn you. Let that be your meditation this week as you sift through my struggles of the flesh and the spirit, the old man, the new man, the last Adam, the new Adam, this husband who's dead, this new husband I'm married to. Where am I? There is no condemnation to those who belong to Jesus. I can't end this with enough emphasis. We belong to him. We hold on to him. He is real he is there for us in our time of need i love how um, beth moore put it in the esther study he is the fill in the blank he's the missing part he's the invisible god at work in all those areas we need him okay let's Father, I do pray that we would grab hold of just the help that you give in the midst of the struggle we find ourselves in, that this condition of wanting to do good but still seeing the things that we don't want to do taking place within us, the struggle that we are warring against, Lord, you are in this struggle you have delivered us. You are victorious. And what we need to do instead of fighting on our own is surrender more and more to you. God, you are the only one who's able to change us. You are the only one who's able to deliver us. Help us to depend on you. Help us to surrender to you. That you will change our desires, not just our actions but what we really want. Even as Jesus said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. God, you're not concerned so much with what we do as you're concerned with what we desire. And the point here is that we would desire you. Lord, I pray that our hearts would just be given over to you, that we would see our condition and recognize that in us, there is no ability, but in you there is everything. That our life needs to be hid with you. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for reaching out to us. And Lord, I, I pray that you would make clear these things that we talked about tonight. Lord, may your spirit just minister my inability to convey what needs to take place to get us out of this struggle, out of this battle, to get us beyond into that place of dependency on you. Lord, thank you that through Jesus Christ, we are delivered. Lord, may we experience that deliverance. And even from this week to next week, Lord, may we recognize that we are not condemned in you. Thank you, God, for your love, your mercy. 
I pray you bless those here. Again, we lift up the Wheat family, and Lord, have mercy on them, minister to them. We do ask these things in Jesus' name.